We've already had such a glorious day, haven't we? To sing the songs that we have, both morning and night, and to engage in the prayers that we have. The opportunity that's been ours to surround the Lord's table earlier today. What a memorable moment. What an occasion that takes us back to the most prolific event in all of human history. Tonight, of course, you've already noted the lesson. I think Brother John made note of it a moment ago. But we're going to revisit Acts chapter 9. So may I invite you to turn to that chapter with me. And we'll study from the opening part of that chapter by and large this evening. The conversion of Saul. It has been an event, a record if you please, that has occasioned no small amount of difficulty and even controversy in the mind of some. But there's really no cause for that. And in fact, this being the second part of a two-part series on the subject, this opening slide really is going to very basically and very quickly recollect for us some of what we studied last Sunday night and then we'll merely continue in our journey here in just a few moments. Saul was a great man in those early days of the church and of course he later would be called Paul from Acts chapter 13 onward. And we remember so well that this one who was such a fearsome person who is in the defender of, of Christianity, but he didn't begin that way. He started out as a persecutor of it. He wasn't a defender of it. In fact, he had in his possession letters permitting him to go to Damascus. There he was going to, in fact, not only imprison, but he was going to cause as much trouble as he could for Christians in that city. You and I learned last Sunday night, you may notice near the bottom, we came to appreciate the conviction of this man that he was willing to travel roughly 200 miles on an old dirt road that was the only means of transportation easily available to him. And yet he was willing to do it only because he detested Christianity. He felt sure it was not right. He felt sure it was merely a fake, an imposter, and he was going to do his best to eradicate the church. But you and I also noticed that there was something to be said in Acts 9 verses 3 and 4 about, quote, the way. There was something special about those Christians. They weren't living like everybody else. They didn't, in fact, conduct themselves like everybody else. It was called the way. And you and I appreciated we're still the way today. Our lifestyle, our conduct, our speech, all of that is to, of course, be seasoned in light of the gospel of Christ. And you and I live differently. We're peculiar in the words of Titus 2.14. Third lesson was this one. We noticed that God handpicked Saul. We remember that this one who had the creative imagination and genius and God saw in him the potential whereby that could be used for Christ and not against him. And we at least reasoned, could God select you and I? Could he pick you and me as one who would be a powerful defender of the kingdom and a defender of his cause? He saw that potential in Saul. Does he see it in you and me? And that led us to lesson number four. And we noticed near the end of Acts 9, verses 3 and 4, something very strange was mentioned. Jesus, speaking to him, said, Saul, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And we noticed that was a reference to an ox goad, basically an item, a device used to steer an animal. Saul apparently had already begun to question enough in his mind that he at least appreciated the fact there might be something to this Jesus. There might be something to this Christianity. And you and I noted that the one who was his teacher, Gamaliel, 
was the very one in Acts chapter 5 who in fact defended the matter of Christianity. Could Paul have begun to feel that way too? It would so seem. But at that point we left our lesson agreeing that we would take it up to nine. And so it is as we come to the next slide that we're now going to appreciate that that conversation between Jesus and Saul, remember, it was about the noonday hour when he arrived near Damascus. And at that point, you remember, a bright light shone about him. This bright light was such that immediately a conversation ensued. And you may remember that Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The Lord was speaking to him from the nature of that light. And at that point... Verse number 6 continues our journey. And he, that's Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. This opening slide is one I've entitled Saul's Reaction. And you and I can easily see what the Scriptures detail about this. That bright light, that initial conversation. And you notice that he, that's Saul in verse 6, trembled. He was rather quickly quaking and shaking by virtue of this. It was an unusual thing. After all, you and I can just imagine how strange it must have seemed. Here he is with his mind set on arriving at Damascus. His mind set on carrying out that which these letters permitted him to do. And yet suddenly, and the text uses that adverb, this bright, exceedingly bright light shone about him. It wasn't just a light, though. There was a conversation. The one behind that light identified himself. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul had no doubt who it was. Isn't it rather amazing and also interesting that the text then says he trembled and he was astonished. He was, quite frankly, in amazement at that which was now occurring. But as you will notice on that slide, that wasn't the end of Saul's reaction. That very same verse, verse number 6, then testified as to that which Saul then said, Lord, notice he called him Lord, the very one who a few minutes before would never have called Jesus Lord. Now he acknowledged him as the Lord. Isn't it amazing the change that had been wrought in this man? But you'll notice that which next immediately occurs, this same one now said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? One of the grandest elements of submission to be found anywhere in the Word of God. Saul at that point was opening up the fullness of his person, the fullness of his life, the fullness of all that he was. Tell me what you'll have me to do. Nothing was off limits. What a complete and total submission that was. It is in that regard I would ask you to notice Saul offered no excuse isn't it amazing how tempting it is for you and me to excuse ourselves in some way or another? We make an acknowledgement of our behavior, but then we quickly say, but. As if we excuse or justify our behavior. My parents instructed me that way. 
Saul could have said that. He was schooled in the finest elements of Judaism the world at that point had ever known. But he made no mention of it. On another occasion, we're sometimes quick to say, but I thought. Saul said no such thing. It didn't matter what he had thought. He was wrong. And it didn't matter what other kinds of influences had been placed upon him. They were misplaced. Saul simply said, what will you have me to do? In many ways, that still must be our thrust, mustn't it? Because we must relinquish all to Jesus. And so you'll notice, at that point I thought it wise to at least interject this. If you're reading in some other translations, for instance, the American Standard of 1901, or maybe even the ESV, you'll notice that a part of verse number 6 is absent. In other words, that section is not actually present in your particular text or your reading. And I thought this comment might be in order. It is true that some of the oldest manuscripts do not contain the first part of verse number 6. But let me in invite you to note this. That which you and I read in the first part of verse number 6, which again was a question, what will you have me to do? The answer to that question is given in the closing part of verse 6. And thus I'm persuaded that question was asked, and that question was a noteworthy one because its answer is given. It is with that in mind, might I ask you to note, maybe we should pause for our first lesson of the evening. The lesson of submission. The lesson of submission to Jesus Christ our Lord. Saul had been such an aggressive opponent to Jesus. Such an aggressive one who denied that this way of Christianity was true. And yet in a matter of moments his life was forever changed. And may I say his eternity was forever changed. For now not only was he no longer an opponent, he was to become its most ardent defender. From this time forward, Paul will in fact not only preach the truth in so many pressing situations, he will take three missionary journeys all across the Roman Empire, blazing the trail of Christianity far and wide. He will ultimately stand before the most powerful emperor the world had ever known, a man named Caesar, defending Jesus Christ his Lord. He would write half the New Testament. He would be a man who later in 2 Timothy, the last book of, that we ever have knowledge of that he wrote, he could say, I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. You'll notice then at the bottom, could I interject this, and isn't it powerful the way the Bible does it? Each and every creature, every human being that has ever lived is going to submit to Jesus. At one time or another, everybody shall. The only question is when. Shall we do it now while this life is ours and while we have the choice given to us? Or will we choose to do it later at the day of judgment when in that sense there will be then no opportunity for it to benefit us any? Are you and I submitting to Him now willfully, humbly, and lovingly, or are we kicking against the pricks knowing that we should but refusing to do so because of selfishness and because we know it may, quote, cramp what we would otherwise prefer? We've got to jettison and remove that which would be our preferences and let God be the one dictating. Lord, what will you have me to do? 
Saul responded that way, didn't he? Could I call some of those verses at the bottom of that slide to our consideration? Maybe it's that passage in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 that say it best. Paul, same writer, same one of whom we're speaking tonight on that occasion said, as he spoke these unforgettable words, And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things under the earth and things above the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will I confess Him now? Or will I do it on the day of judgment? Those are the only choices. May we in wisdom confess Him now. Turning our life over, relinquishing all to Him. Isn't it true we sometimes sing a song, Lord, to Thee I surrender all. Do we mean that when we sing it? You'll notice here Saul surrendered everything. Later on, wouldn't he say in Galatians 1.13 that he had in fact risen above many who were his equals, being far more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the fathers. You and I know well that Saul had advanced greatly in Judaism. He later would say in Acts 26 that when particular Christians were persecuted, Saul gave his word against them. That has led many to believe that either he was a member of the Sanhedrin court or he was a greatly influential person that that court sought in terms of its counsel. Either way, Saul had arrived at almost the highest echelons of Judaism and yet at this moment he gave all of it up. All of it. Never again would he be influential among the Sanhedrin court. In fact, he was going to be the court's principal enemy. No longer again would he ever occupy that position. He gave all of it up. I would suggest then as we close that slide, it brings us to the continuing journey. You'll notice as you notice this reaction... Give me just a moment. Thank you. Isn't it interesting in light of these instructions that we now see, taken from the latter part of that same verse, verse number 6, these instructions I've simply entitled Jesus' instructions. The very top of that slide, I would encourage you to perhaps consider this little comment. It simply says, Saul asked a direct question, What will you have me to do? Have you ever thought about the fact this would have been the perfect time for Jesus to speak from heaven and tell him on the spot what he was supposed to do? But the Lord didn't do that. In fact, the Lord gave him this interesting instruction. You go into the city and it'll be told you what you need to do. In other words, there was to be another messenger. There was to be an individual who would share with Saul what God expected him to do. That leads me to note the following. You'll notice then that he did arise, and he and those men that were with him, they did continue to make that journey. Saul was now blinded. He was unable to see. Another had to lead him into the city, and when he arrived, you'll notice verse number 8 says this, that a man led him, they led him by the hand into the city, and he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. On that slide, you may quickly notice, in that city, 
the God of heaven had a gentleman, a person whose name was Ananias. And God, in fact, delivered a message to him. There's a person named Saul coming, and I want you to go and talk to him. I want you to go and share the truth you've got with him. Saul was, or rather Ananias, was initially resistant. He, in fact, commented, we've heard about this man. We've heard of what a persecuting force he is. We even have heard he has letters permitting him to come here and arrest Christians. Needless to say, Ananias was a bit nervous. But the Lord comforted him and said, This man is a chosen vessel to me. Go and talk to him. Ananias did, and you and I know how this turned out. In fact, when Ananias came, this was the singular message he gave him. Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty two sixteen. And isn't it true that that man Saul was baptized? He became a Christian. Three days after he, in fact, was the most vehement opposer of Christianity, he was now one of them. Oh, what a transformation was wrought in the heart of that man. That leads me to ask you to notice as we close that slide, it was in fact just a very few days later this same man began to preach. Here he was standing in pulpits at another places of influence, preaching the very message not many days before he was hoping to destroy. I hope we're each impressed with the change that had been wrought in this man. And at the top of this slide, we perhaps come to the next lesson. Lesson number two for the evening. The message was in men. I think we each can be impressed that again, here was an occasion when a man was begging the Lord, tell me what you'll have me to do. But the Lord didn't tell him the answer. You go into the city and a preacher is going to tell it to you. Now that word preacher is not in the verse, but the fact is when Ananias came, that's exactly who he was. And shouldn't you and I be reminded that the message of truth is now in men because we've got it bequeathed to us in the Word of God. God is not going to tell anybody in some small, still voice what they have to do to please Him. He doesn't communicate to us this way any longer. In the Old Testament, He did send visions and dreams on occasions to individuals, but those days are no more. In fact, those days were not even then, because remember, Saul was begging to know what to do, and the Lord didn't tell him. You go into the city. And the same means whereby others must learn the gospel. Saul, you're going to have to be appreciative and respond to it as well. Isn't it true we then learn something rather basic and fundamental about what is required in terms of the message being in men? We have to understand that men then carry forth the message of truth as it is preached and proclaimed, and we must respond to that. It is in that regard I would call to your attention 1 Corinthians 1.21. On that occasion, didn't Paul say, again, the very gentleman of whom we've been studying, the power of preaching is written in words like this. It was the foolishness of God in which He saves people by preaching. Now you and I know that God's message is powerful, Hebrews 4.12, and it's perfect. There's no flaws or discrepancies in it, but the fact still remains that He has bequeathed it to men to preach it. And Saul had to appreciate that fact too. And so into the city he had to go. You'll notice one other fact. 
In Romans 1 verse 16, Paul understood this truth and later when he wrote to the church in Rome, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said, I'm ready to preach it. I'm debtor to preach it. And so the very thing that Ananias needed to do for him, Paul was excited to do for those brethren in Rome to preach the truth, to preach the gospel. And today, may we lift up the hands of those, wherever they may be worldwide, that proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3.8. Ananias was the one to bring this message to Saul. May I suggest, though, that there's another lesson lurking here so very swiftly. And that lesson is this one. You'll notice, what might we say about belief? What might you and I say from this context about belief? It's safe to say that many of those in denominational circles will point to this passage and use it to help an attempt to say this. Well, don't you know that all you've got to do to please the Lord is believe in Him. Invite Him into your heart. May I ask where they get that in the New Testament? May I offer this passage for at least some consideration? If ever there was a man and a time when somebody could be saved, in light of an approach like that, would this not have been it? Here was a man begging Jesus himself, tell me what I need to do. Please tell me what I need to do. He was begging the Lord to tell him. Jesus did not say to him, believe. And the reason's obvious. Saul already believed in him. He already had had conversation with him. And in fact, Saul already called him Lord, Acts 9 verse 6. He already believed. He was begging for further instruction. What do I need to do? And Jesus did not tell him, you're already saved. The Lord did not say that to him. In fact, could I invite you to notice verse number 6, the way it closes? Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Would you please perhaps even underline in your mind that word must. Whatever it was that Ananias told him, was not optional. The word must highlights a necessity. It highlights that which is not merely an optional matter. It highlights what is absolutely essential, required, and is an obligation. Saul, you go to the city, and it'll be told you what you... He didn't say might do, may do, should do. He said must do. Now, in light of that, look at some of these... Remaining considerations on this third slide. This slide highlighting this lesson number three. When you and I think about belief, let me say it as bluntly as this. Belief did not save Saul on the road to Damascus. In fact, he wasn't even saved on the road to Damascus. Would you be impressed with this? After his conversation with Jesus, the text is very clear in verse number nine. It says he was three days and three nights, or rather three days without sight, and he did either eat nor drink. You'll notice what that suggests. You'll notice, in fact, what that clearly states. Here was a man troubled in his mind. He had spoken with Jesus, the Lord, on the road to Damascus, and he knew that he wasn't right. 
He knew that he had devoted years of his life opposing and persecuting the very thing and the very truth that he now knew. He knew that a change was necessary. That law of Moses that he had defended so powerfully was no longer the law in force. He knew it. But you'll notice he was troubled. He was yet waiting for an answer. He spent three days and didn't eat anything. Have you ever been so agitated in heart and mind that you couldn't eat? Here was a man that was exhibit A in that very situation. He knew that he needed to do something, but he didn't know yet what to do until Ananias came. May I ask you, did Saul again believe in Jesus while he was on the road to Damascus? Of course he did. Notice how troubled and hard in mind he was. He knew what had happened on that road. If ever there was one that believed in Jesus, it was him, but that wasn't enough to save him. Look furthermore on this slide. We are told all throughout the Word of God that belief alone is not enough to save. If it were, may I suggest to you in James 2.19, even the demons would believe. If belief alone were enough to save, the demons would be saved because the text there tells us they believe. And aren't you and I reminded on several occasions that while Jesus was here in the flesh, the demons would often identify who He was. Thou art the Christ. Remember the occasion when in fact they were cast out of that man and went into the herd of swine? They knew exactly who Jesus was. They believed in Him. But none of us surely would believe demons will be saved. In fact, 2 Peter 2.4 says, They are bound in chains under everlasting darkness awaiting the occasion of the judgment. They're not going to be saved, but they believe. Belief won't save any human beings either. Look furthermore at John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. There we have a record of individuals who in fact believed in Jesus, but it says they didn't obey Him. That text goes on to say the reason they didn't obey was because they were fearful they'd be cast out of the synagogue. May I ask, do you suppose they were pleasing to God? They believed but didn't obey Jesus. You and I know very well the answer to that. Because belief alone won't save, it never has. One final thing on that slide. What the Bible does inform us is that belief must, of course, lead to one's continuing obedience. And, of course, that's what happened in the life of Saul. On that road to Damascus, he had come to believe in Jesus all right. But that belief brought in him a sorrowfulness for what he had done. Again, he virtually fasted for three days here. And as he did that, I'm sure he must have been so thankful for the coming of Ananias, who would tell him what he needed to do. And sure enough, he did it without delay. And as we've noted earlier, he was baptized into Christ. But aren't you and I reminded, belief alone didn't save him. When you and I are told, or at least we are asked to consider by some, perhaps who are our friends and neighbors, about the reality, many times they will be quick to say, was it Saul saved on the road to Damascus? And you and I should be ready to share with him Acts 9, reminding him, no, he wasn't. Perhaps one final thing. Almost all of us surely would agree that in order to be saved, sins have to be forgiven. Sins have to be removed. What was it that Ananias told him when Ananias came to him? Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. 
Again, as Ananias arrived, remember the first words that Ananias said, Saul, why are you waiting? Why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. That man was still in sin. He was still in sin. For you'll notice Ananias did not hear these words from Saul, but Ananias, my sins were forgiven on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. That wasn't said. The reason is Jesus didn't forgive his sins. He hadn't complied with the gospel plan of salvation to have them forgiven. But when Ananias told him, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, there's when his sins would be forgiven. When he submitted to baptism in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder you and I highlight so beautifully the meaning of baptism. That act in which one contacts the blood of Christ, having his or her sins washed away, then you're saved, then you're forgiven, then you're sanctified, then your name's in the book of life. These three lessons bring us to a fourth one. And perhaps it immediately follows from the one you and I just now noted. You might remember again those words in Acts 9 verse 6. Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And yet the thing that Ananias told him, Arise and be baptized, wash away thy sins. Question. Putting those two thoughts and those two verses together, doesn't it now follow that baptism was not an option? What you must do, Saul, is be baptized. You and I, of course, so powerfully and wonderfully lift high the reality of what baptism does. It is not an outward grace that is a sign of an inward response. It just isn't. Baptism is far deeper, far more significant than that. In fact, on this slide, would you note this with me? You and I, as we have in the book of Acts, ten cases of conversion. Count them, ten of them. And one by one, as we look at every one of them, we notice that due to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on certain occasions... Certain particulars are not as emphasized as much as in others. And yet in every one of them, without exception, every one of them without exception, baptism is not only described, it's highlighted and emphasized. I realize there are those in the religious world who frown quite strongly upon you and I for emphasizing baptism the way that we do. We do it because the Bible does it. In 1 Peter 3.21 it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus Himself had stated it like this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You'll notice bookends, in essence, were described. Belief and baptism, starting and stopping, if you please, in light of the initial obedience to the gospel. But baptism, you'll notice, preceded salvation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Salvation follows both. Maybe two final thoughts. As you look at some of these additional examples... You'll notice in Acts 8 verse 12, for example, 
that there, even in the place of Samaria, when Philip had come to that location and preached about Jesus and preached about the kingdom, it says that upon so doing, many, both men and women, were baptized. Now that ultimately would include Simon the sorcerer. And later in that chapter, we have that remarkable scene of an Ethiopian eunuch. There was a gentleman, a man who had traveled such a far, far distance, roughly a thousand miles one way. Why had he done this? He had done this because in his appreciation that was the way to please God. But on that road, returning homeward, the Holy Spirit encouraged Philip to join himself to that chariot, Acts 8, 26 and following. And when he did, this conversation developed. Understandest thou what thou readest? That eunuch was reading from what we would call Isaiah 53. The eunuch said, How can I accept some man guide me? At that point, Philip, it says, verse 35, began to preach to him Jesus. It must have been a masterful sermon, filled with truth, filled with directness, and filled with all the love and graciousness of the God of heaven. But isn't it amazing that as they were traveling along on that direction southward, it was the eunuch who said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, you and I know that that eunuch didn't get that message out of the Old Testament. Nowhere in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Lamentations or any of those books do you read about God commanding the, those Israelites to be baptized in the way the eunuch requested. But yet Jesus commanded it. And you and I realize that when they arrived at that water, the eunuch was desirous of having done to him the same thing Ananias told Saul to do in the next chapter to be immersed into Christ, to become a new creature. No wonder we emphasize baptism because it is that thoroughfare through which we contact the blood of Christ and we become a New Testament Christian. As you and I close that slide, isn't it a fascinating thing to conclude our lesson and perhaps summarize in a very few and brief set of thoughts about not only last week's lesson but tonight's as well. Saul was a fascinating man, a man who was committed. Whatever he believed in, he stood up for it in a very aggressive way. You and I could learn much about that, always defending our Master, the one whom we love, Jesus Christ our Lord. But not only that, you'll notice rather quickly, he wasn't kicking against the pricks anymore. He now was a member of that body that Jesus Christ had purchased with His blood. He had submitted fully to Jesus. And not only that, you'll notice, He came to appreciate the fact the message was in men. And He would become one of those men that would preach those unsearchable riches. It is fascinating that He knew very well and never opposed it. Belief doesn't save. It didn't then and it doesn't now by itself. But rather it must be coupled with obedience. And so it is that as Ananias told him to be baptized, he did not wait. In fact, he wanted to do it immediately. And later he would say in Galatians 1, I conferred not with flesh and blood. He didn't want to wait until some convenient time. He knew he needed to be baptized then. And as I mentioned earlier, he soon came to be a great preacher, of course. Read Acts chapter 9, verse number 20. 
As we've looked at this two-part series on the conversion of Saul, I hope we've been reminded of many things. And as we read those later books that he would write, what a tremendous person as we reflect on what he once had been and yet what he now had become. He later would tell Timothy, I was the chiefest of sinners, but God was merciful to me. And you know he could state that from his heart. In many ways, you and I maybe can reflect on what we once were before we became a Christian, but what we are now because of the teaching of the truth. If there's anyone in this audience who's not a faithful Christian tonight, maybe you've never become one initially, and if you haven't, don't you want to become a Christian? Don't you want to be a person living in harmony with Jesus? You must believe upon Him as the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, though, maybe you haven't been convicted enough. Maybe you have, in fact, lived in a way that's been rather disgraceful. You know that it isn't right. You, you simply have a sense of it. Don't you want to make things right? It's quite, an, it's quite a feeling, and it's quite a reality. When you recognize that upon prayer to God and the realization of your confession and repentance, He's promised He'll wipe those from you. It's like a burden being lifted off your shoulders. And it's like a clearing of the conscience. It really is a remarkable feeling and reality. And tonight we'd be honored to assist you to pray to God on your behalf, making acknowledgement of your repentance and confession. If we could do that in any way tonight, it'd be our privilege and it'd be our joy to do it. We would ask you to let us know the way we can assist you and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.